Good morning, everybody. It's just lovely to be with you again today. Thank you for the session, for inviting me to uh, be with you and share God's Word with you again this morning. And if you have uh, your copy of God's Word with you, uh, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 27, where I will take up again what I started at, uh, a little over a month ago to preach the latter part of that of that psalm. Psalm chapter 27, we covered the first six verses last time. We're going to cover verse 7 all the way down through the end of the psalm, but I'm going to read uh, all of the psalm to refresh your memory. So please hear now God's word from Psalm chapter 27, beginning at verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I, will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Now, verse 7, the focal of our sermon today. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the God of your people's comfort. You are the God of this congregation. And so, Father, we look in hope to you for that comfort, for your encouragement. We know, Father, that you have given your word to instruct us in the ways that we should go. And so, Father, we pray that you would grant us the mind of Christ now as we seek to understand this passage, how it applies to each of us individually and as a congregation of the Lord. We ask, Father, you would bless our time in your word, and we ask it all, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Confidence is the feeling or belief that one can rely on someone or something. It is firm trust in somebody, and it seems to me that confidence is necessary for people to have security in this life. 
And when we were children, we inherently had trust in our parents. We believed that our parents would trust us no matter what we were facing. They would do everything in their power to protect us from the bad circumstances that we faced. And even in my adult years, when I used to travel from Houston back to my mother who lived in Louisiana to her house, I always felt secure even though I was a grown man and was facing difficulties, usually at work. I trusted that I was safe because I was there with my mother. Now, my mother couldn't do anything about the sort of troubles that I was with, but I think this points to the fact that God has created in the family a security that naturally falls to us as children and as to being his children. And so if we should trust so readily in our earthly parents who can do very little about some of the things that we face, how much more so should we trust in our heavenly Father who can do everything over the circumstances that we face? We learn more about this from this psalm, Psalm chapter 27. Last time we examined the first six verses of this psalm where we found that David at some point in his life expressed his delight in the Lord as his light and salvation. Light and salvation means God is the source of our goodness. And God is the one who saves us, not only saves us from the penalty and the power of our sins, but he delivers us from those circumstances that we consider to be bad. And this gave David a confidence that God would protect him, even if an army encamped around him. He further exulted in the Lord's worship at the tabernacle because of the joy that it brought him to be so near the symbol of God's presence. And so it was a result of David's past experiences and the expectation of God's blessings and good plan for David for the future. In the next eight verses, David appeals to the Lord for the Lord's help. In verses 7 through 8, David puts forward a general petition for God's grace. He says in verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry, be gracious to me and answer me. Your translation may say, God, please be merciful to me. The ESV that I read out of says, God, be gracious to me. It may be translated either way grammatically, but in the context where David is not asking for forgiveness of his sins, he's asking for help in the midst of trouble, specifically in verse 12, it's probably best to understand that David is asking for God's grace to come to him. David is anxious, as seen in several verses where he makes his appeal. In verse 7, he says, Hear when I cry aloud and be gracious to me. And in verse 8, he says, Hide not your face from me. And according to verse 8, at some point, the Lord instructed David to seek God's face. It could be back in the days of the Old Testament that the Lord told David directly by audible voice, by direct revelation, we would say, in the Reformed faith. God told David specifically to seek his face. Or it may be that David is remembering what the Mosaic Law taught. 
There was a verse there that David remembered that God says that his people should seek him out. Like Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 29 says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. And so either way, whatever way David knew what he knew, he knew that God desired his people to seek him out. Seek him out in a time of trouble. And that's not only true for David, it is true for us today. God desires us to seek him out in whatever circumstances that we find ourselves. Now we might think of this at this point, if David was so sure of God's help, his blessing and his protection, why did David think it was necessary to ask God for his grace? That is the same things that are, he mentioned in the first six verses in different words. Well, first of all, because David did not see help coming on his horizon. And David uh, knew that he needed to seek God out to gain that help. And God has put in his word for his people to pray for God's help. And so the relationship that God has, God controls every event that occurs in our lives. The sparrow does not fall from the sky unless God has ordained that it be so. And so all of the circumstances that occur in our life come because the Lord controls those circumstances. We haven't gotten over here and gotten out of the Lord's sight. And the Lord said, how did he get over there? I never understood uh, how he was going to get there. What, what is he doing over there? No, the Lord doesn't do that. The Lord knows exactly why we are where we are. The Lord knows exactly why we face what we face. And so God, because of the relationship that we have with him and because of his control providentially of our lives, has ordained that he will carry out that providence through the prayers of his people. And so first of all, David prays knowing that God is good, knowing that God is going to rescue him, saying, God, please do according to your will in my life. Secondly, if we don't ask the Lord when we're in hell, and when we need help, then we have no one to blame for the outcome but ourselves. Because it says in James chapter 4, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Being a little emphatic right here because Pastor Ben's already preached on this passage, hadn't he? And he pointed out to us that sometimes we don't have the things that we need because we simply don't ask for those things. And so David does not initially know what the Lord's present purpose is in his life, and he further knows that past rescues did, did not automatically mean present deliverances. Otherwise, he wouldn't have asked again, and so he appeals on this occasion to the Lord to once again show him God's grace. And so should we. We don't know what God's plan in our lives either, the only way we really know God's will for our lives is to read it in the scriptures. And then sometimes in our lives specifically that applies to us, we can see in retrospect what God's will for our lives. Because if things happen in our lives, that was God's will. It wouldn't happen 
if it wasn't God's will. It doesn't mean that he already approves of what happens in our lives. When we sin, he does not approve of that. But somehow that and all the bad things, things that we would call bad, happen because they were part of God's plan for our lives. And so like David, we too must seek God's face, especially when we have a pressing need. How's your 401k and IRA doing? If it's like mine, it's probably not doing too well. It's probably not very good to look at it, but every now and then you have to keep a check on it just to make sure it hadn't completely gone away. Everybody has financial needs, uh, especially if you're a senior citizen like I am today. That's a pressing need. And so we need to go before the Lord and ask the Lord to protect what we have, keep it from being lost or stolen or mismanaged or whatever has to happen. But in the final analysis, we trust that God is going to do what is right because God has promised that he will provide for us. So if he wipes out my IRA or my 401k, that's because he's going to provide for me in another way. So our confidence is not in our abilities. We do what we can. We do what God has given us the ability to do, but ultimately our trust is in him, and we ask him to carry out his perfect plan and help in our lives. In verses 9 and 10, David appeals to God not to hide his face or to turn away from him in anger. One of the commentaries I read said that what David is saying there is, please answer David's prayer or David would turn away in anger. However, I think the correct understanding of this is David is sensitive to his sin. Uh, he may be blind in some area of his life and, and not realize that he sinned against the Lord in some way. God may be angry with him. And so David comes before the Lord reverently and cautiously, not presuming upon his relationship with the Lord. And you know how this turning away goes with those that you know. If they're mad at you, they won't speak to you, and they will even turn a cold shoulder towards you. Many years ago, I used to have a very good friend. He was actually a pastor in the PCA. And I had on several occasions with him, he would say something to me, and I would get mad at him. And then he would get mad at me for getting mad at him. And he would give me the cold shoulder and expect me to apologize to him because he offended me. If that's confusing to you, it was confusing to me too. But nevertheless, I would finally give in and I would apologize to him. This is not Pastor Ben that I'm talking about here. <laughs> okay. This was another fellow. All right. And so I hadn't really done anything wrong, I didn't think. But I had to apologize to the guy to get on to uh, good terms with him. Some people are blind to their own faults. I guess all of us at some point are blind to our own faults. Well, experiences like this help us to understand David's caution that the Lord can turn away and give us the cold shoulder. However, he doesn't expect us to apologize when he offends us because the Lord never does anything wrong. And so when things don't go our way, we can't sit back and say, well, you know, God, you messed up. You didn't help me or you didn't cause my life to go the way that I wanted. 
And so we need to come before the Lord with the same attitude that David does. We need to come with a cautious reverence before the Lord, knowing that the Lord may very well be displeased with us because it should be our desire to live in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. And one of the things that is pleasing to the Lord is to have a cautious reverent, humble attitude when we come before him to make our petitions. But immediately after asking for God not to turn away, David acknowledges that God has been his help in the past. As a result of his experiences, David has become familiar with God's ways in his own life. We cannot know God's way for sure apart from his word. But we learn from his word what he is like. And then because we have familiarity with the way God is, we have certain familiarity with the way God is, then we see in our life those things being carried out and so we can have some idea of what God is doing in our lives. But we have to have God's word to understand that. And David has supplemented his Bible knowledge through practical observation of how the Lord has responded to David's needs and actual events. And David further pleads for God's not to cast him off nor forsake him. The Lord has been the God of David's salvation or deliverances from bad circumstances. And in verse 10, David refers to being forsaken by his parents. The ESV and the New American Standard translate this as something that's already happened. But if you happen to have the King James or the New King James or the NIV, this it is translated such that this could potentially happen. The Hebrew is in the past tense, so the forsaking by David's parents is something that has already happened. The problem is there is no record in the Bible of David's parents forsaking him. However, there is written in 1 Samuel chapter 22, uh, 22, verses 3 and following. And it says, And David went out from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. David had a connection with Moab. His great-great-grandmother was Ruth, and Ruth was a Moabite, but she had converted to the God of Israel, and she had married an Israelite man. And so down through the generations, David had family that was in Moab, and when he got in trouble and was fleeing from the king of Israel, Saul, who wanted to kill him, David wanted to protect his parents, and so he took them to the Moabites where they would be safe from Saul. But this separation from David by his parents could hardly be characterized as being forsaken by them because it was initiated by David, and so David is speaking hypothetically here. He's speaking comparatively that if such an occasion were to happen where his parents, those who should love him the most and be the most disposed to help him, if they did forsake him, then the Lord could be counted on to help him. John Calvin says this, quote, David does not complain that he was unnaturally betrayed by his father or mother, 
But by this comparison, he magnified the grace of God, declaring that he would ever find him ready to help, although he might be forsaken of all men. David, therefore, meant to intimate that whatever benevolence, love, zeal, attention, or service might be found among men, they are far inferior to the paternal mercy with which God encircles his people, unquote. The compassion of men is far inferior to the paternal mercy of God, Calvin says. And all of us usually have this sort of relationship with our parents such that they can be counted on to give us the sort of support that we need. Certainly, they will give us verbal support. And if it's within their ability, they will give us material support as well. And I suspect that even if it came to it, they would lay down their lives for us as their children. If they would do that, how much more so would God do that? A friend in need, we would say, is a friend indeed. Or in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The Lord Jesus Christ has laid down his life for his friends. For you and me, if you're here today trusting in his salvation. And so the cross is the ultimate display of the Lord's willingness to care for and protect his people. And in verses 11 through 12, David states his specific request, and it comes in two parts. It begins with his desire for the Lord to teach David the Lord's way and to lead him on a level path. These two requests are actually the same request in different words. Uh, these uh, are not entreaties for David uh, to be taught the Mosaic Law. This is not a request for God to help him to understand the Bible. It's a request for God to show him the way out of his troubles. To lead him on a level path means help my ground to be uh, straight and level before me so that I can escape the things that I am facing. Ralph Davis says in his commentary, quote, David also prays for the direction that he needs in verses 11 and 12. This way is not the way of duty, but of providence. That is, David is not asking after any commandments he is supposed to keep but wants to know the way that Yahweh intends to take him in order to come out of this trouble. He wants Yahweh to show him the pathway through the difficulties and threats he is facing, unquote. It's like asking for wisdom. In James chapter 1 that Pastor Ben talked about just a few months ago, Lord, help me to have the wisdom to follow you in the right way to get out of the circumstances that I'm in. It takes a familiarity with God's Word, but help me to understand how that Word applies in my circumstances. And of course, when we read about false witnesses, we cannot help but think that David was like the Lord Jesus Christ at this point. It says in Mark chapter 14, verse 55, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, 
and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Of course, the false witnesses did not themselves breathe out violence against him like David says was done against him, but their witness aided those who actually carried out violence against the Lord Jesus Christ in the cross of Calvary. And if there were false witnesses against David, the man after God's own heart, and against the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Life, you can bet that there will be false witnesses against you and me. I don't know about you, but I don't like criticism. I especially don't like criticism that is not true criticism. I may deserve criticism from time to time, but it really gets my back up when people criticize me falsely. But we have to realize that this is a way of life for some people. They live in falsehood and they breathe out falsehood against God's people, which uh, Pastor Duncan was talking about just a few minutes ago, that people despise that we raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And they will bear false witness against us if it can keep us from doing so. And in every other aspect of us observing God's commandments in his kingdom. Usually the reason people do that is because they have something to gain from it. However, knowing that those who are spiritually better than us, namely David and the Lord Jesus Christ, had to put up with this sort of treatment, should encourage us to follow their example, to turn the other cheek, to be patient when they do things like this and not respond in anger and certainly not in violence. And then in verse 13, David declares that the Lord will deliver him. He says that he will continue to look upon the goodness of the Lord while David is yet alive, and this shows the confidence that David possesses. And then in verse 14, David exhorts others when he says, Wait for the Lord Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He urges his fellow believers to wait for the Lord's intervention in whatever we may face. Our hearts should take courage in any situation, and we should wait and see what the Lord will do for us. And so we ask the question, well, how can David be so confident? How can David be sure that things will turn out such that he will continue to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of living? None of us can say that because we don't know what the Lord is going to do. All of us are going to die at some point in our life. And so how can we expect that everything is going to continue in our circumstances because we don't know what God's plan is for our individual lives? And so David had some specific promises but apart from those specific promises that he was going to sit on the king, uh, on the throne of Israel, his descendants were going to rule on the uh, kingdom of Israel down through history. Apart from those things, David didn't know any better than we do about what God is going to do in our lives. All that David could know is what we know. In Psalm 139, verse 16, your your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. God has ordained our days. He has set the number of days before we were born as to how many days we were going to live. We don't know what that number of days is, but we are invincible until that number is up 
and we can't add one more day to it. So I go back to the original question, how did David know that God was going to cause him to continue to live and he was going to see goodness in this life? Because David didn't know any more than that other than the things that I have already said. Because David recognizes something that we need to all recognize, that God is inherently trustworthy. Even in things that we would just as soon not go through, God knows what's best. And so when you take the book of the Psalms, this theme repeats itself over and over and over again. And it's as though God said as a subtitle over the Psalms, trust me. Trust me because I am trustworthy. You can be secure, you can be confident in me because I am trustworthy. And it's like he told Israel when he was going to bring them back out of exile. In Isaiah chapter 30 verse 15 he says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. We should be at peace. I'm not saying that there's not anything out there that we shouldn't be afraid of. All of us are. I'm afraid of pain just like everybody else. But in my heart, I know that God is in control of my circumstances. And God is going to bring to pass that which is best for me. And because he has demonstrated that he loves me in the cross of Christ and in taking care of me and providing for me and my household, I can trust that what he's going to bring into my life is a good thing, even though it may be painful, because God has a good reason for it. And so in the last day, when we stand before God Almighty in the day of judgment, we will be perfectly satisfied that God has treated us righteously and very well. And so let quietness and trust be the attitude of our hearts, and we will be confident in the Lord.